Good morning, once again. Merry late Christmas. Hope you had a good day yesterday, whatever you were doing. And we are glad to see you here this morning. So, it's still kind of the Christmas season, even though Christmas Day has passed. And uh, today is an open mic, which does not mean we pass the mic around and everyone gets to speak. It means I get to talk about whatever topic I want. So I always keep a little list of like, six or eight things, different passages and topics that it's like, ooh, this would be fun to talk about or this would be fun to preach on. But more than half of them are from the Gospel of John, which is the Gospel we're preaching through right now. So it would be a little awkward for me to come up and preach John 3.16 and then two weeks from now it gets preached again when we get to that passage. So it eliminated about half my possibilities. So I was thinking, what can I do that's Christmas-related Uh, That's not a birth narrative, because we'll probably have covered that already, because it's after Christmas. And so, of course, when you think of Christmas-related passages, what book do you go to? Song of Solomon. (laughs) So, if you're new to Hiawatha, or new to church, and you aren't familiar with the Bible, and you have no idea what Song of Solomon is, then the fact that people just laugh doesn't really mean anything to you. But Song of Solomon is not the book you would typically associate with Christmas, necessarily. It's... um, So each part of Scripture has like a human level and a divine level. So the human level of Song of Solomon is it's a relationship between a man and a woman, romantic relationship. So it's their dating and uh, engagement and marriage. So it covers things like love and marriage and sex and that type of thing. Uh, So not what you necessarily associate with Christmas and Jesus' birth. But uh, in the intro here, we'll show how it is related. So... Love and Christmas. Wait, what? Song of Solomon? All right. So, some verses from John. John 1.14, which we preached a few weeks ago. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word here is Jesus. So Jesus Christ became flesh, became a man, and dwelt among us. And why did he do this? Lots of reasons, but what was the main motivation for Jesus coming? Because Jesus is God, so was it just his godness, like that's just what God does, he comes and saves people? Was he just bored? He's like, well, I've got nothing to do for the next 33 years, so I might as well become a man, and I'll save people on down there. No, it wasn't those things. John 3.16, which I'm not going to preach, I think Spencer's preaching this in a few weeks, so I'm not going to steal your thunder, but look at what it says at the beginning. Why did God send Christ? Why did Christ voluntarily come, uh, become a man to live and to die and to be raised from the dead? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It was love that motivated God to send Christ. His love for us. It was love that motivated. Now, love is a very Christmas-related thing. Also, Look at what it says here. He gave his only son. He gave us a gift. It's easy for me anyway to not think of Christ as a gift. Like I'm very thankful for it. Christ came. He did things I could never have done for myself. Saved me in ways I could never have saved myself. But I don't often think of it as a gift in the sense that I think of like a Christmas gift or something like that. But it is. God gave us a gift. He gave us a gift that we didn't deserve that was unexpected and he gave it out of love. Now Song of Solomon Talks all about love. So that is 
uh, the relationship there. Or at least that's the one I'm going with. And then a few verses from 1 John to hone in a little bit more on love. Because Song of Solomon, it has the human side of love and the divine side of love. So we're going to look at 1 John for a minute to talk a little more about this divine side. So 1 John 4.10, it says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation is a word that basically just means substitute. So Christ came and he took our place. He died for our sins. He died a death we deserved and we get the life that we don't deserve. So he swapped that. He propitiated that. So this is saying certainly 1 John and other books of the Bible talk about how we do love, and we're going to talk about that some today. But 1 John here makes it clear that love originates with God, not with us. God loved us first. And in fact, it says in other parts of Scripture that when God first started loving us, we were his enemies. So it wasn't like we were trying to figure out if we loved God or not, and maybe we kind of liked him. We were his enemies and we hated him, and he loved us. And then 1 John 3.16 takes it even farther. So now it's not just saying with these verses we've read, well, God came to us motivated by love. Christ was sent motivated by love. It's not just saying God loved us first. It says here in John 3.16, without God's love, we don't actually know what love is. It says in 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. So it's saying if Jesus Christ hadn't come and laid down his life for us, we wouldn't even know what love is. The definition of love, people say, well, what is love? How do you define love? And there are certainly many pieces to what love is. But the core of love, 1 John tells us here, is Jesus laying down his life for us. What is love? It's sacrifice. It's a laying down. And certainly it includes many other pieces. It includes affection and romance and all these things, depending on what type of love it is. It includes familial love from a parent to a child. But at its core, the definition of love is a laying down, a sacrifice, which Jesus demonstrated for us to a much greater degree than we can ever do for each other. It says also in Scripture, not just that Christ defines love, but that Jesus is love. Not just that he's loving, or he's a lover of people. He is love. Love itself has now been incarnated in a person. Love isn't now just an idea or an action. Jesus Christ as a person is love. So, with all that said, let's now move into Song of Solomon chapter 8. Just two verses, verses 6 and 7. And this, so in the book, uh, the main speakers are a man and a woman talking to each other. This passage is the woman talking. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Let's pray, and then uh, we'll talk about this. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you came to us, that you came and died for us, that you rose from the dead, that you have saved us from our sin, that you've given us a love we don't deserve, that you are love. And we thank you for these words from Song of Solomon. I pray that through your words and through my speaking that we would all be encouraged 
that we would all be drawn more to you, that we would all fall more in love with you. And I pray for those here, God, who don't know you this morning, uh, who do not know your love, that they would begin to see that you are a God who loves deeply. Amen. So, uh, this is not necessarily the way you would typically describe love, some of the words that are used here. Now, this is in the context here, it's talking mainly about romantic love. So, you know, if I go out on a date and I come home and some of my roommates are there and they're like, how was your date? And I said, oh, it was like death. It was like the grave. It was like being drowned in floods and burned in fire. They'd say, oh, so you're saying it was not a good date? Not words you typically use to describe love. Fire sometimes, love burns like fire, but death, the grave, uh, drowning in floods, not so much. But these are the words Solomon uses, and uh, for very cool reasons, which we will see. So we're going to start at the beginning, work our way through the passage, and see what it has to say for us. We'll start with seal. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. So a seal at this time, you may or may not know what's talking about here, is like a king that would seal a letter or a document or something like that. So a seal was a signet, so a round thing with a symbol, and you would usually use wax and melt some wax onto the paper, and you would stamp it with this seal, and then you would take this document, usually a decree or edict of some kind, to whoever it needed to go to. And this would pass through the hands of different people, and people would see the seal and know that they couldn't open it. And so when it got delivered to whoever it was going to, they would check and make sure the seal was still intact. And if it was, it was all good. If it wasn't, that meant someone had opened it, and then you'd have to question people who had handled it along the way. And depending on what was in this thing that was sealed and how severe it was, the punishment uh, could vary up to and including death, depending on what was going on. So that's the idea of a seal. We today, this is not on the same level, but you can think of when you buy something that's still sealed. Like sometimes when you buy something, you want it sealed in the shrink wrap. It's that type of idea. Why do you want it sealed? Because it tells you that it's still new, that it hasn't been used or tampered with, that you're getting what's advertised to you, and you know no one's interfered with that. So a seal is a mark of protection so think of that document as being protected from being read or handled by people who shouldn't handle it. If you're buying something and it's sealed in the package, it's protected from other people using it. It's also a mark of ownership. If a king stamps something with a seal, that belongs to the king. And if you handle it, if you do things with it you're not supposed to, you're going against the king and you're going to answer to the king, either directly or through one of his uh, subjects that he's appointed to handle that. So the woman here says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. So heart, biblically, does not just mean, like we think of heart, emotions, and what you feel. That's part of it, but it's bigger than that. Heart, biblically, encompasses mind, emotions, and will. So basically everything that's internal. And then arm represents action. So she's saying here, set me as a seal over everything, every part of me inside and out, over how I think, how I feel, how I act, over my actions, over my emotions, over my mind, over my will. The internal and the external. So that's the human side of this sealing. Now, God seals us. God has sealed us. If you're here in this room and you're a believer, you've been sealed by God, not physically with wax 
and a metal or wood or stone stamp, but you've been sealed with God, by God. Ephesians 1 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. God has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. If you're in this room and you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. And with that Holy Spirit comes spiritual gifts, comes other things, but also that's a seal from God. It's a guarantee He's given, a stamp saying, this Holy Spirit is the down payment I'm getting you. You're going to get the rest of it in eternity, the full inheritance. But this is the proof both that you'll get the rest of it in eternity. And also this seal is a mark of protection on you. The Holy Spirit protects you from interference by outside things. Also a mark of ownership. We are now owned by God. We belong to God. And the idea of ownership, especially with people for many reasons, has negative connotations. Some of those very good reasons for negative connotations. But here, to be owned by God is a good thing, not a bad thing. Because God in owning us never abuses us or uses us. He loves us. Don't forget, he is love. He's acting out of love. And so his ownership of us is a loving thing that protects us, that cares for us, that helps us. God has sealed us. You have been sealed by God. You have been sealed for God. For love is strong as death. So this obviously leads to the question, how strong is death? Right? It's great that love is as strong as death is. We think of death as a negative thing for good reason. Love is a positive thing. But depending on how strong death is, that changes how valuable it is that love is strong as death. If I say, did you know that I'm as strong as my cousin Henry? Now my parents in the room laugh because they know who Henry is. The rest of you don't. So that statement doesn't mean anything to you. You don't know who Henry is or how strong he is. Now, if I tell you that my cousin Henry is actually my first cousin once removed and he's four years old, and I say I'm as strong as Henry, it loses a lot of the impressiveness, does it? It's like, and then there's the question, wait, you're only as strong as Henry? Right? So the idea of love being as strong as death is only as impressive and valuable as the strength of death. So how strong is death? Isaiah 25 says that death is the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. And a few other verses on the strength of death from Psalms and Ecclesiastes. What man can live and never see death? The implied answer is no one. From Ecclesiastes, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Think of all we do to avoid death, to put death off. And to some degree, in some ways, we can in some situations. But death comes eventually. You can't fight it forever. You can't outrun it forever. And then Psalms again. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. And the pit meaning death. So they're saying, it's so costly. It's not possible to live forever because it's impossible to pay what death owes. No matter how much you give, no matter what you try and do, 
no matter how you try and outrun death and beat death, eventually death catches up with us. It enfolds all peoples. It covers all nations. And we know that, right? We don't need Scripture to tell us that we've experienced that. Many of us have had friends die, family members die. We've seen death come. We've seen death take people we love. And it's not just physical death. We've seen other deaths. We've seen deaths of relationships, deaths of friendships, deaths of marriages. We've seen these things grounded in love die. We've seen the strength of death. But love is as strong as death. Now that's encouraging, but it's not fully satisfying. Because if love and death are the same strength, that means love's not guaranteed to win. If they're the same strength, it's possible that sometimes death might overcome love, sometimes love might overcome death. And we've seen in life what appears to be death overcoming love. The death of relationships that had love at their center. The death of people that we love. Our love wasn't strong enough to keep them alive. Death took them. Their love for us wasn't strong enough to keep them alive. We've seen love as strong as death, but we've also seen death as strong as love. But that's the human side. Fortunately, the divine side, there's a love that's not just as strong as death, but there's a love that's stronger than death. From 1 Timothy, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The verse from Psalm 49 just said, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life because it costs too much. But Jesus is not just a man. He's a man and God. And so he was able to pay the ransom that we couldn't. He gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus ransomed himself in love to buy us back from death. And look at what it says in Acts 2. So Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he was dead. And then Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it, death, was not, or because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Death was not strong enough to hold him. Christ's love is stronger than death. And how did he show that strength over death? He didn't show it by beating death up or kicking death around. He showed it by coming to death and saying, all right, do the worst you can to me. Show me all your power. And death did. And Jesus died. And Jesus said, guess what? That's not enough. You're strong, but I'm stronger. You're not strong enough to hold me. So death did it. Death killed him. And then death is trying to hold on to Christ in the grave. And for a day and a half it holds on and then it can't do it. It's not strong enough. Jesus pries those fingers off and walks out of the grave. Jesus' love is stronger than death. If you're here this morning and you don't know God's love, hear this. You owe God a debt that you can't pay. And the ultimate cost of that debt is death. And we all have owed that debt. And we all owe it still. But for those of us who believe, we believe that Christ paid that debt for us. That Christ overcame death. Sin, Satan, and death are the three big enemies 
of believers and of all people. We think of enemies as physical, people we don't like, different countries, different nations, different diseases. We think of all these different types of things as enemies. But our ultimate enemies are sin, Satan, and death. And Jesus, on the cross, defeated those enemies. Now, not all of those enemies have been totally destroyed yet. They've been defeated, their power's been taken, but they still exist. Death still exists. Sin still exists. Satan still exists. Jesus says, I've defeated those enemies. There's a time coming in the future where I'm going to destroy them. You'll never see them again. They'll never touch you again. They won't exist anymore. That time hasn't happened yet. But they've been defeated. I showed that by raising from the dead. They're not strong enough to overcome. And if you're here and you are a believer, be encouraged. Christ's love is stronger than death. There are times where that feels like it isn't true. Where death feels stronger, where sin feels stronger, where Satan feels stronger. Christ's love is stronger than death. Death has been defeated but not destroyed yet. But it will be destroyed. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have that protection. We have that guarantee of inheritance. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Now, we often think of jealousy as a negative thing, and it certainly can be in many uh, ways at many times. But did you know Scripture talks about the fact that God is a jealous God? And since God is good, that means there has to be components of jealousy that are good. So that leads to the question, what is a godly jealousy? Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Proverbs 27.4, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? And that's true. You may have seen that personally in your life. You may have seen it secondhand. Wrath that comes from people is cruel, but it usually burns out fairly quickly. People are wrathful, they do things, and then it's done. Anger is overwhelming. Someone who's angry, it overwhelms everything they're doing, everything they're thinking, but then it happens and it burns out. But jealousy, jealousy is this thing that just gets inside a person and just sticks there and just goes on and on. And so this jealousy continues to impact how people act, how people think. Who can stand before jealousy? In the context here of romantic relationship, think about a spouse who's unfaithful and the other spouse becomes jealous. And what does that lead to? Anger, wrath, violence sometimes, in extreme situations, death. Who can stand before jealousy? So then what is a godly jealousy? How can jealousy be a good thing? Jealousy can be a good thing because jealousy, a godly jealousy, is God jealous for us. Because why? Because he sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Because he, it's his responsibility to protect protect us and because he owns us so he's jealous for us he wants us he doesn't want anyone else to have us but this is not like a human selfish jealousy that can happen that's controlling and possessive and unhealthy god wants himself to have us rather than, than anything else because he knows he's the best thing for us he knows other things that can have us that can own us that can possess us will harm us not do us good in 2 Corinthians, Paul is speaking here to the Corinthian church he's writing to, and he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. 
So Paul here says, I have a divine, a godly jealousy for you. I see you sinning. I see you wandering from Christ, wandering from truth. And that arouses jealousy within me. Because I know where that leads. Because it's not going to do you anything good. I feel a divine jealousy for you. A jealousy that wishes to protect you and draw you back. And it uses here the analogy of marriage. And those of you who are married, think about that. If you have a spouse who suddenly starts spending all their time with another man or another woman and not with you, that's going to arouse some jealousy in you. And that's a good thing. There should be some jealousy there. There should be jealousy to desire to protect that relationship, to protect that person. Now, how that jealousy is acted on can be godly or can be sinful. But that jealousy at its core is not inherently sinful in that situation. James 4, 5. James now writing about God again. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So here, James links jealousy with the deposit of the Holy Spirit that we've been sealed with. So God's jealousy flows from his love, flows from the sealing that he's given us, sealed for himself in the Spirit through his love. And James here links God's jealousy with that. God is jealous for you. A jealousy as fierce as the grave. How fierce is the grave? It doesn't let go. The grave doesn't surrender things. Once something's died, the grave doesn't give it back. Now Christ is stronger than the grave, and he can take things back from it. But that's how strong God's jealousy is. It's strong as the grave. God's jealousy doesn't give back. He won't give us back to ownership of sin. He won't give us back to ownership of death. He won't do that. He loves us. His jealousy flows from his love. His jealousy protects us. His jealousy cares for us. And again, all human jealousy is not good. Even biblically, you see many examples of ungodly jealousy, obviously not done by God, done by people. But don't hear what I'm saying and say, oh, Jesse said all jealousy is good. So all the jealousy I feel, all the ways I act, those are godly things. That is not true. But there is a healthy, godly jealousy that exists in God and in people. Like Paul says, there is such a thing as a divine jealousy that we can feel and act on. Next, the fire of God. Talking about love still. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Now fire in the ancient world was a very necessary thing but also a very dangerous thing. Fire can still be a dangerous thing today. We've seen over the past couple of years the forest fires that have burned out of control. It can be easy for us to think with a fireplace at our house or like a fire that burns under our gas water heater or something. We can think of fire as this kind of controlled thing, easy to handle, not very dangerous anymore. But fire still has the potential for much danger. We've seen that in the forest fires when things catch on fire. But in the ancient world, it was even more so. There were no firefighters. There were no fire stations. There weren't systems that could pump water throughout a town like there are today. If stuff caught on fire, unless you were by very close to a large source of water and had a large number of people to fight it, you were most likely going to lose whatever was on fire. And you just prayed that the fire didn't spread so far that it killed everyone 
or destroyed all your crops or all your livelihood, whatever that might be. Fire was very dangerous, very uncontrollable, very easy for it to quickly get out of hand. But it was necessary, as it is today. So this talks not just about fire, but the fire of the Lord, the fire of God. So what's different about the fire of God? How does the fire of God relate just to regular fire at that time? From Psalm 97.3, speaking about the fire of God, it says, Fire goes before him and consumes his adversaries on all sides. And Hebrews 12.29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. So we've said before, God is love, which he is. But God is also a consuming fire. What's a consuming fire? It's a fire that eats up, burns up everything. If you've ever been at a campfire, and you've had a log on the fire, and it burns for hours, and it just keeps burning, and you keep fanning those flames. At the end, depending on what type of wood it is, all you have is ash. The fire has completely consumed the wood. All you have left is a bed of ash. That's like the fire of God. Whatever it touches and consumes, there's nothing left afterwards but ash. It's all consuming. But... See how God's fire is not just powerful, it's controlled in a way that fire couldn't be controlled regularly in the ancient world. Look at what Psalm 97.3 says. Fire goes before him, but what does it consume? It doesn't consume everything. It consumes his adversaries on all sides. On all sides. So fire goes out from God in every direction. And there are adversaries and there are non-adversaries. It's not like all the adversaries are all standing in one place all the non-adversaries, all his friends, all those who've been saved are staying somewhere else. But the fire only consumes his adversaries. God is in control of that fire. It doesn't burn indiscriminately. He controls what it burns and where it burns. It goes forth on all sides. It rolls out in all directions, but he controls the burning. The fire of God is a fire that's all-consuming, but not out of control completely controlled by God. This is the fire that consumes us. Scripture talks about, not in a literal sense, of course, but spiritually, God is an all-consuming fire. And when we're saved, one of the metaphors it uses, He lights us up and He burns us. And He burns away in all the sin, refines us through that, a refining fire, an all-consuming fire. But it burns us up completely, inside and out. It touches every part of us, the fire of God. But it's controlled. He burns us without destroying us. He burns us and saves us in it. Our God is an all-consuming fire. The fire of God. Christ's love burns like God's fire. Christ's love goes forth on all sides. And it touches all of us. And it consumes us. It touches every part of us. It refines us. It changes us. So now let's go from fire to water. Many waters cannot quench love. Love can't be quenched. So quench 
we tend to think of it in two different ways, and both of those actually have the same meaning, but we think of it in more of a positive way and more of a negative way. So the negative way, we think more about quenching, like putting out or extinguishing. Like I had a flame and it was quenched. Or like, oh, that kid, they had such a great spirit, and then it was quenched and squashed down by someone. So a putting out or extinguishing. But quench can also mean to satisfy. Think of thirst. That's how it's usually used. My thirst was quenched. I drank water and that thirst was satisfied. Now, it means the same thing. That thirst is put out or extinguished, but we think of that in more of a positive light, the quenching of thirst versus the quenching or stifling or something. Love can't be quenched. Many waters cannot quench it. Love can't be put out. Love can't be extinguished. And you might think, well, is that really true? Like, I've seen love extinguished. I've seen love put out in my life and other people's lives. I've seen human love that was drowned by many waters, whatever those, metaphorically, whatever those waters may have been. How can you say love can't be extinguished? Love can't be put out? Remember, the human side and the divine side. Our love, imperfect as it is, can be quenched. Christ's love cannot. Christ's love can't be put out, it can't be extinguished. Death tried, sin tried, Satan tried, they couldn't do it. But not only can Christ's love not be quenched, Jesus' love quenches in us our hungers and thirsts. From John 7 and John 6. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All of us come today hungry and thirsty. Not just physically. Hungry for other things. Thirsty for other things. Hungry for love. Hungry for identity. Thirsty for meaning. Jesus Christ, His love quenches those hungers and thirsts in Himself in his death and resurrection, in the seal that the Holy Spirit has placed on us. Whatever hunger or thirst you have here today, I don't know what it is, but God knows what it is. And God knows that Jesus Christ is the thing that can quench that thirst and quench that hunger. Whatever it is. And not only can he, he wants to. He acts in love. He loves us. He wants to quench your hunger. He wants to quench your thirst. And the love that he gives that quenches that can never be quenched by anything else. It will never run out. It will never be put out or extinguished. Not only can it not be quenched, it can't be drowned. Neither can floods drown it. Now, drown here is a good translation. It's not a bad translation. The Hebrew word here that uh, they translate as drown can also mean overflowed, which if you have a flood and it overflows everything things are going to drown. So that's the end result. So drowning works. But the idea of overflowing has some cool nuance to it that's not present if you just think of drowning. So love cannot be overflowed. Jesus' love can't be overflowed. We try and overflow it. Or we think that we can. We think our sin will overflow it. Our doubts will overflow it. Our fears will overflow it. Our shame will overflow it. 
We think of all these things that, oh, well, I could bring that to God, but this is too big. This is too much. It'll overflow Jesus' love. Jesus' love cannot be overflowed. But not only can it not be overflowed, just like with quenching, Jesus' love overflows. From Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, meaning sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is talking about Christ's love overflowing. Because of the great love with which He loved us, He overflowed our death. He overflowed our sin with His love. And not just a general love, but the love that came through His death and resurrection. Jesus' death on the cross, His resurrection from the grave, the love that's present in that, overflows the death that's in us because of our sin overflows our sin, overflows all our doubts, all our fears, all our shames. No matter how big any of those things get, Christ's love raises higher. No matter how often we try and build a dam or a dike or some other barrier to keep Christ's love out, it finds its way through all the chinks and the holes and it overflows the top. We can't keep Christ's love out. It can't be overflowed by anything we can bring. No matter how great those things get, no matter how big, no matter how deep, Christ's love overflows. Look at the end of this Ephesians passage. The immeasurable riches. Christ's love is immeasurable. No matter how much we bring, there will always be more love. The love will always be able to overflow. Christ's love will never run dry. It will never run out. There will never be anything we can bring or anything we can do that it is not possible for Christ's love to overflow. Jesus' love overflows on our behalf. Finally, love can't be bought. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And we know this, right? If I came in next week and said, hey, guess what, I got married, people would hopefully be like, that's great. How'd that, you know, how'd you meet her? This seems really sudden. How'd you fall in love? And I'd be like, oh, well, I offered her a bunch of money and she agreed to marry me. It's like, eh, that's probably not actually love. That's something else. And you wouldn't be happy for me in that. You would kind of despise me and be like, oh, so you like bought a wife. That's, that's not good. That's creepy. That's not okay. If you try and buy love, you're despised. And yet we try all the time. We try to buy God's love. We try and buy Christ's love with our actions. We think, oh, if I'm good enough, Christ will love me. That's just trying to buy love. Or if I do these things, if I come to church, if I act a certain way or don't act a certain way, or read a certain amount of my Bible every day, or think these things or don't think these things, we think, oh, I'll buy Christ's love. And we don't think of it in those words, but that's what we're doing. And what does this say? What does Christ do when we try and buy our love? He despises it. He despises that action. Because it's a slap in his face. Because he already bought our love. It would be like on Christmas morning, you buying a present for a child, and they open it, and they're like, this is great! I love it! Let me pay you for it. 
Well, no, 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 it's a gift. Like, I bought it for you. You're not going to pay me back. And if they kept pushing and trying to pay it back, eventually they'd be like, no, no, you can't do that. Like, you're making little of what I've given you. This is offensive to me. You're not going to buy this gift back. When we try and buy God's love, he despises that. He still loves us, but he despises that action because he already bought that. Look at what this verse says about the value of love. Love is of greater worth and value than all the wealth of a house. So think about if you lived your whole life and somehow were able to save all the money you ever made and still somehow eat food and have a warm place to sleep on winter nights and all that. But if you got to the end of your love or your love, your life, and you took all the wealth you've accumulated and all the other stuff you had that wasn't cash and credit, and you tried to give all of that for love, it's not enough. Love is of greater value than that, greater worth than that. That's how valuable love is. And remember, the woman here is talking, this is just human love. Even human love, this is how valuable love is. We don't often think of love as that valuable, do we? We think of love as cheap. But as valuable as that love is, Christ's love is even more valuable and even more costly. We were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 7 says. Jesus' love is offered to us freely, but it didn't come free. It cost him everything. It cost him his life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We try and buy love. We try and buy God's love. But the reality is in life, the only thing we can buy is death. All the works we do, all the good we try and do, everything we try and do to be presentable to God, those wages only buy us death. What is a wage? It's something you earn. All we earn is death. We don't earn God's love. We earn death. Christ's love comes as a free gift. Just like Christmas. Huh? Another Christmas time. A gift. Christ's love is like the Christmas present you unwrap on Christmas morning that you didn't expect, but you're so excited when you open it. So as an adult, I still enjoy getting gifts for Christmas, but they're not usually as surprising. Like, you might not know the exact thing, but you know the category. Like, oh, I'll probably get some clothes. I don't know if it'll be a shirt or pants or whatever. So you have categories, but you don't know the specifics. But yesterday for Christmas, I got a totally unexpected gift from my parents, which was great. It was a great gift. It was something I never would have seen coming or expected, totally unexpected. And I thought about this. That's what it's like to open up the gift of salvation for the first time. You open it up and you're like, whoa, I would never have thought I needed this. I would never have asked for this. I would never have seen this coming. But this is so awesome. This is just what I needed that I didn't know I needed. And even as believers, we open that up again every day. That's why we come Sunday and preach the gospel. Because we need to hear it. We need to have that gift open for us again and reminded. Because it's so easy for us to fall in the pattern of trying to buy love instead of just accepting freely the gift of love that Christ gave us through his death and resurrection. Accepting salvation. We try and buy things that he's already paid for. Revelation 5.9. So this is at the end of time, basically, and people are standing around God's throne singing praise to him. And these people standing around saying a new song, saying, Worthy are you 
talking about Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus was slain, he was killed. And in that dying, he ransomed. He paid the debt we couldn't pay. He took our sin, he took the death we deserve, and in exchange, he gave us life, he gave us love as a Christmas present, as a free gift wrapped up with nothing to do except take it and open it. No work to do for it, no repayment to be made, just a gift. In conclusion, people of Hiawatha, as we go today, remember, if you're here and you're a Christian, God has sealed you. He's sealed you in himself for himself. If you're here and you're not a Christian, know that God loves you and he wants to seal you. He wants to give you the deposit of the Holy Spirit. He wants to give you eternal life. He wants to give you all the good things we talked about this morning. And it's a gift. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to go through a class. You don't have to read a certain Bible passage and memorize it. It's just believing that Jesus Christ paid a debt we couldn't pay to give us a gift we don't deserve. And all we do is accept it. Like a kid so excited to open their Christmas present and the thought never enters the kid's mind, oh, I better repay this gift. No, they just take it and they use it and they enjoy it. And that's the gift Christ gives us. Just to take and use and enjoy with no thought of repayment. Also, people of Hiawatha, whether you're a believer or not, remember these things about God's love. Jesus' love is stronger than death. Jesus' love is more jealous for you than the grave is. Jesus' love burns like the flashes of the fire of God. Jesus' love quenches every hunger and every thirst that you have. And Jesus' love overflows your sin, your shame, your doubt, your fear, your weariness, anything else you bring. Jesus' love overflows those things. And in overflowing, those things sometimes will still be present to some degree. They're not washed away necessarily. Sometimes they can be, but not always. But if they're still present, no matter how much there is, Jesus' love will overflow it. And if that raises up, Jesus' love will overflow it. Jesus' love will flow and pour out and overflow it again and again and again. And finally, Jesus' love is that Christmas gift freely offered to all. If you're here this morning and you don't believe, know that Jesus is offering you this gift, the gift of himself. If you're here this morning and you have believed for a day or a decade or half a century, know that Jesus still offers this gift to us. Every day we need this gift of Christ. It's not something we did once and we took it once and now we're good and we're on our own. It's like food. You need to eat food every day. We need that gift every day. And every day, it's reoffered, overflowing, unending. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you that your love is as strong as death, that it's fierce as the grave, that it burns like the fire of God. We thank you that your love cannot be quenched, 
cannot be drowned, cannot be bought. We thank You that You offer it to us freely. We pray, God, today, whatever we have going on, that we would uh, remember Your love, that we would delight in Your love. I pray, God, that we would fall more in love with You. I pray for those of us who don't feel Your love right now, who are hurting in some way, that we would know that Your love is present and overflowing. Amen.